Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Mao's On Practice and Contradiction, and we're going to get most of the rest of the Contradiction chapter finished. In the last couple of weeks, Mao has been talking about what contradiction is, how it manifests in things, and how to think about it in terms of internal contradictions, and how to parse the ways in which things are contradictory. In particular last week, kind of teasing out the ways that contradiction is not a fixed concept or a fixed state, it is not unrealistic to perhaps make an alliance with someone who you would otherwise be against, but you form an alliance with them because you have a shared enemy that both of you legitimately oppose, even if you may then later have to split that alliance and once again face your temporary partner. So let's continue with this chapter. Section 4. The principal contradiction and the principal aspect of a contradiction. There are two... There are still two points in the problem of the particularity of contradiction which must be singled out for analysis, namely the principal contradiction and the principal aspect of a contradiction. There are many contradictions in the process of development of a complex thing, and one of them is necessarily the principal contradiction whose existence and development determines or influences the existence and development of the other contradictions. For instance, in capitalist society, the two forces in contradiction, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, form the principal contradiction. The other contradictions, such as those between the remnant feudal class and the bourgeoisie, between the peasant petty bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie, between the proletariat and the peasant petty bourgeoisie, between the non-monopoly capitalists and the monopoly capitalists, between the bourgeois democracy and bourgeois fascism among the capitalist countries and between imperialism and the colonies, are all determined or influenced by this principal contradiction. In a semi-colonial country such as China, the relationship between the principal contradiction and the non-principal contradictions presents a complicated picture. When imperialism launches a war of aggression against such a country, all its various classes, apart from some traders, contemporarily unite in a national war against imperialism. At such a time, the contradiction between imperialism and the country concerned becomes the principal contradiction while all the contradictions among the various classes within the country, including what was the principal contradiction between the feudal system and the great masses of the people, are temporarily relegated to a secondary and subordinate position. So it was in China in the Opium War of 1840, the Sino-Japanese War of 1894, and the Yiho Tuan War of 1900, and so it is now in the present Sino-Japanese War. But in another situation, the contradictions change position. When imperialism carries on its oppression, not by war, but by milder means, political, economic, and cultural, the ruling classes in semi-colonial countries capitulate to imperialism, and the two form an alliance for the joint oppression of the masses of the people. At such a time, the masses often resort to civil war against the alliance of imperialism and the feudal classes, while imperialism often employs indirect methods rather than direct action in helping the reactionaries in the semi-colonial countries to oppress the people, and thus the internal contradictions become particularly sharp. 
This is what happened in China in the Revolutionary War of 1911, the Revolutionary War of 1924-27, and the 10 years of Agrarian Revolutionary War after 1927. Wars among the various reactionary ruling groups in the semi-colonial countries, e.g. the wars among the warlords in China, fell into the same category. When a revolutionary civil war develops to the point of threatening the very existence of imperialism and its running dogs, the domestic reactionaries, imperialism often adopts other methods in order to maintain its rule. Either it tries to split the revolutionary front from within, or it sends armed forces to help the domestic reactionaries directly. At such a time, foreign imperialism and domestic reaction stand quite openly at one pole, while the masses of the people stand at the other pole, thus forming the principal contradiction which determines or influences the development of the other contradictions. The assistance given by various capitalist countries to the Russian reactionaries after the October Revolution is an example of armed intervention. Chiang Kai-shek's betrayal in 1927 is an example of splitting the revolutionary front. But whatever happens, there is no doubt at all that at every stage in the development of a process, there is only one principal contradiction which plays the leading role. Hence, if in any process there are a number of contradictions, one of them must be the principal contradiction playing the leading and decisive role, while the rest occupy a secondary and subordinate position. Therefore, in studying any complex process in which there are two or more contradictions, we must devote every effort to funding its principal contradiction. Once this principal contradiction is grasped, all problems can be readily solved. This is the methodology Marx taught us in his study of capitalist society. Likewise, Lenin and Stalin taught us this method when they studied imperialism and the general crisis of capitalism, and when they studied the Soviet economy. There are thousands of scholars and men of action who do not understand it, and the result is that, lost in a fog, they are unable to get to the heart of a problem, and naturally cannot find a way to resolve its contradictions. As we have said, one must not treat all the contradictions in a process as being equal, but must distinguish between the principal and the secondary contradictions, and pay special attention to grasping the principal one. But, in any given contradiction, whether principal or secondary, should the two contradictory aspects be treated as equal? Again, no. In any contradiction, the development of the contradictory aspects is uneven. Sometimes they seem to be in equilibrium, which is, however, only temporary and relative, while unevenness is basic. Of the two contradictory aspects, one must be principal and the other secondary. The principal aspect is the one playing the leading role in the contradiction. The nature of a thing is determined mainly by the principal aspect of a contradiction, the aspect which has gained the dominant position. But this situation is not static. The principal and the non-principal aspects of a contradiction transform themselves into each other, and the nature of the thing changes accordingly. In a given process or at a given stage in the development of a contradiction, A is the principal aspect and B is the non-principal aspect. At another stage or in another process, the roles are reversed. 
a change determined by the extent of the increase or decrease in the force of each aspect in its struggle against the other, in the course of the development of a thing. We often speak of the new superseding the old. The supersession of the old by the new is a general, eternal, and inviolable law of the universe. The transformation of one thing into another, through leaps of different forms in accordance with its essence and external conditions, this is the process of the new superseding the old. In each thing, there is contradiction between its new and its old aspects, and this gives rise to a series of struggles with many twists and turns. As a result of these struggles, the new aspect changes from being minor to being major, and rises to predominance, while the old aspect changes from being major to being minor, and gradually dies out. And the moment the new aspect gains dominance over the old, the old thing changes qualitatively into a new thing. It can thus be seen that the nature of a thing is mainly determined by the principal aspect of the contradiction, the aspect which has gained predominance. When the principal aspect which has gained predominance changes, the nature of a thing changes accordingly. In capitalist society, capitalism has changed its position from being a subordinate force in the old feudal era to being the dominant force, and the nature of society has accordingly changed from feudal to capitalist. In the new capitalist era, the feudal forces changed from their former dominant position to a subordinate one, gradually dying out. Such was the case, for example, in Britain and France. With the development of the productive forces, the bourgeoisie changes from being a new class playing a progressive role to being an old class playing a reactionary role, until it is finally overthrown by the proletariat and becomes a class deprived of privately owned means of production and stripped of power, when it, too, gradually dies out. The proletariat, which is much more numerous than the bourgeoisie and grows simultaneously with it but under its rule, is a new force which, initially subordinate to the bourgeoisie, gradually gains strength, becomes an independent class by playing the leading role in history, and finally seizes political power and becomes the ruling class. Thereupon, the nature of society changes and the old capitalist society becomes the new socialist society. This is the path already taken by the Soviet Union, a path that all other countries will inevitably take. Look at China, for instance. Imperialism occupies the principal position in the contradiction in which China has been reduced to a semi-colony. It oppresses the Chinese people, and China has been changed from an independent country into a semi-colonial one. But this state of affairs will inevitably change. In the struggle between the two sides, the power of the Chinese people, which is growing under the leadership of the proletariat, will inevitably change China, from a semi-colony into an independent country, whereas imperialism will be overthrown, and old China will inevitably change into new China. The change of old China into new China also involves a change in the relation between the old feudal forces and the new popular forces within the country. The old feudal landlord class will be overthrown, and from being the ruler it will change into being the ruled, and this class, too, will gradually die out. From being the ruled, the people, led by the proletariat, will become the rulers. Thereupon, the nature of Chinese society will change, and the old, semi-colonial and semi-feudal society will change into a new democratic society. 
instances of such reciprocal transformation are found in our past experience. The Qing dynasty, which ruled China for nearly 300 years, was overthrown in the revolution of 1911, and the revolutionary Tang Menghui, under Sun Yat-sen's leadership, was victorious for a time. In the Revolutionary War of 1924-1927, the revolutionary forces of the Communist Kuomintang Alliance in the south changed from being weak to being strong, and won victory in the northern expedition, while the northern warlords who once ruled the roost were overthrown. In 1927, the People's Forces, led by the Communist Party, were greatly reduced numerically under the attacks of Kuomintang reaction. But with the elimination of opportunism within their ranks, they gradually grew again. In the revolutionary base areas, under communist leadership, the peasants have been transformed from being the ruled to being the rulers, while the landlords have undergone a reverse transformation. It is always so in the world, the new displacing the old, the old being superseded by the new, the old being eliminated to make way for the new and the new emerging out of the old. At certain times in the revolutionary struggle, the difficulties outweigh the favourable conditions and so constitute the principal aspect of the contradiction, and the favourable conditions constitute the secondary aspect. But through their efforts, the revolutionaries can overcome the difficulties step by step, and open up a favourable new situation. Thus, a difficult situation yields place to a favourable one. This is what happened after the failure of the revolution in China in 1927, and during the long march of the Chinese Red Army. In the present Sino-Japanese War, China is again in a difficult position, but we can change this and fundamentally transform the situation as being China and Japan. Conversely, Favourable conditions can be transformed into difficulty if the revolutionaries make mistakes. Thus, the defeat of the revolution in 1924-27 turned into defeat. The revolutionary base areas, which grew up in the southern provinces after 1927, had all suffered defeat by 1934. When we engage in study, the same holds good for the contradiction in the passage from ignorance to knowledge. At the very beginning of our study of Marxism, our ignorance of or scanty acquaintance with Marxism stands in contradiction to knowledge of Marxism. But by assiduous study, ignorance can be transformed into knowledge, scanty knowledge into substantial knowledge, and blindness in the application of Marxism into mastery of its application. Some people think that this is not true of certain contradictions. For instance, in the contradiction between the productive forces and the relations of production, the productive forces are the principal aspect. In the contradiction between theory and practice, practice is the principal aspect. In the contradiction between the economic base and the superstructure, the economic base is the principal aspect, and there is no change in their respective positions. This is the mechanical materialist conception not the dialectical materialist conception. True, the productive forces, practice, and the economic base generally play the principal and decisive role. Whoever denies this is not a materialist. But it must also be admitted that in certain conditions, such aspects as the relations of production, theory, and the superstructure, 
in turn manifest themselves in the principal and decisive role. When it is impossible for the productive forces to develop without a change in the relations of production, then the change in the relations of production plays the principal and decisive role. The creation and advocacy of revolutionary theory plays the principal and decisive role in those times of which Lenin said, without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. Footnote 15. When a task, no matter which, has to be performed, but there is as yet no guiding line, method, plan, or policy, the principal and decisive thing is to decide on a guiding line, method, plan, or policy. When the superstructure, politics, culture, etc., obstructs the development of the economic base, political and cultural changes become principal and decisive. Are we going against materialism when we say this? No. The reason is that while we recognize that in the general development of history, the material determines the mental and social being determines social consciousness, we also, and indeed must, recognize the reaction of the mental on material things, of social consciousness on social being, and of the superstructure on the economic base. This does not go against materialism. On the contrary, it avoids mechanical materialism and firmly upholds dialectical materialism. In studying the particularity of contradiction, unless we examine these two facets, and the principal and the non-principal aspects of a contradiction, that is, unless we examine the distinctive character of these two facets of contradiction, we shall get bogged down in abstractions, be unable to understand contradiction concretely, and consequently be unable to find the correct method of resolving it. The distinctive character or particularity of these two facets of contradiction represents the unevenness of the forces that are in contradiction. Nothing in this world develops absolutely evenly. We must oppose the theory of even development, or the theory of equilibrium. Moreover, it is these concrete features of a contradiction, and the changes in the principal and non-principal aspects of a contradiction in the course of its development, that manifest the force on the new superseding the old. The study of the various states of unevenness in contradictions, of the principal and non-principal contradictions, and of the principal and the non-principal aspects of a contradiction, constitutes an essential method by which a revolutionary political party correctly determines its strategic and tactical policies, both in political and in military affairs. All communists must give it attention. Section 5. The Identity and Struggle of the Aspects of a Contradiction When we understand the universality and the particularity of contradiction, we must proceed to study the problem of the identity and struggle of the aspects of a contradiction. Identity, unity, coincidence, interpretation, interpermeation, interdependence, or mutual dependence for existence, interconnection or mutual cooperation, all these different terms mean the same thing and refer to the following two points. First, the existence of each of the two aspects of a contradiction in the process of the development of a thing presupposes the existence of the other aspect, and both aspects coexist in a single entity. Second, in given conditions, 
Each of the two contradictory aspects transforms itself into its opposite. This is the meaning of identity. Lenin said, quote, Dialectics is the teaching which shows how opposites can be and how they happen to be, how they become, identical. Under what conditions they are identical, transforming themselves into one another, why the human mind should take these opposites not as dead, rigid, but as living, conditional, mobile, transforming themselves into one another. End quote. Footnote 16. What does this passage mean? The contradictory aspects in every process exclude each other, struggle with each other, and are in opposition to each other. Without exception, they are contained in the process of development of all things and in all human thought. A simple process contains only a single pair of opposites, while a complex process contains more. And in turn, the pairs of opposites are in contradiction to one another. This is how all things in the objective world and all human thought are constituted, and how they are set in motion. This being so, there is an utter lack of identity or unity. How can one speak of identity or unity? The fact is that no contradictory aspect can exist in isolation. Without its opposite aspect, each loses the condition for its existence. Just think. Can any one contradictory aspect of a thing or of a concept in the human mind exist independently? Without life, there would be no death. Without death, there would be no life. Without above, there would be no below. Without below, there would be no above. Without misfortune, there would be no good fortune. Without good fortune, there would be no misfortune. Without facility, there would be no difficulty. Without difficulty, there would be no facility. Without landlords, there would be no tenant peasants. Without tenant peasants, there would be no landlords. Without the bourgeoisie, there would be no proletariat. Without the proletariat, there would be no bourgeoisie. Without imperialist oppression of nations, there would be no colonies or semi-colonies. Without colonies or semi-colonies, there would be no imperialist oppression of nations. It is so with all opposites. Under given conditions, on the one hand, they are opposed to each other, and on the other, they are interconnected, interpenetrating, interpermeating, and interdependent. And this character is described as identity. Under given conditions, all contradictory aspects possess the character of non-identity, and hence are described as being in contradiction but they also possess the character of identity, and hence are interconnected. This is what Lenin means when he says that dialectics studies how opposites can be identical. How can they then be identical? Because each is the condition for the other's existence. This is the first meaning of identity. But is it enough to say merely that each of the contradictory aspects is the condition for the other's existence? that there is identity between them, and that consequently they can coexist in a single entity? No, it is not. The matter does not end with their dependence on each other for their existence. What is more important is their transformation into each other. That is to say, in given conditions, 
each of the contradictory aspects within the thing transforms itself into its opposite, changes its position to that of its opposite. This is the second meaning of the identity of contradiction. Why is there identity here too? You see, by means of revolution, the proletariat, at one time the ruled, is transformed into the ruler, while the bourgeoisie, the erstwhile ruler, is transformed into the ruled and changes its position to that originally occupied by its opposite. This has already taken place in the Soviet Union, as it will take place throughout the world. If there were no interconnection and identity of opposites in given conditions, how could such a change take place? The Kuomintang, which played a certain positive role at a certain stage in modern Chinese history, became a counter-revolutionary party after 1927 because of its inherent class nature and because of imperialist blandishments, these being the conditions. But it has been compelled to agree to resist Japan because of the sharpening of the contradiction between China and Japan, and because of the Communist Party's policy of the United Front, these being the conditions. Things in contradiction change into one another, and herein lies a definite identity. Our agrarian revolution has been a process in which the landlord class owning the land is transformed into a class that has lost its land, while the peasants who once lost their land are transformed into smallholders who have acquired land. And such a process will occur yet again. Under given conditions, having and not having, acquiring and losing, are interconnected. The two sides have a single identity. Under socialism, private peasant ownership is transformed into the public ownership of socialist agriculture. This has already taken place in the Soviet Union, as it will take place everywhere else. There is a bridge leading from private property to public property, which in philosophy is called identity, or transformation into each other, or interpenetration. To consolidate the dictatorship of the proletariat or the dictatorship of the people is in fact to prepare the conditions for abolishing this dictatorship and advancing to the higher stage, when all state systems are eliminated. To establish and build the Communist Party is in fact to prepare the conditions for the elimination of the Communist Party and all political parties. To build a revolutionary army under the leadership of the Communist Party and to carry on revolutionary war is in fact to prepare the conditions for the permanent elimination of war. These opposites are at the same time complementary. War and peace, as everybody knows, transform themselves into each other. War is transformed into peace. For instance, the First World War was transformed into the post-war peace, and the civil war in China has now stopped, giving way to internal peace. Peace is transformed into war. For instance, the Kuomintang Communist Cooperation was transformed into war in 1927, and today's situation of world peace may be transformed into a second world war. Why is this so? Because in class society, such contradictory things as war and peace share an identity under certain conditions. All contradictory things are interconnected. Not only do they coexist in a single entity under given conditions, but under other conditions. They also transform themselves into each other. 
This is the full meaning of the identity of opposites. This is what Lenin meant when he discussed how they happen to be, how they become, identical, under what conditions they are identical, transforming themselves into one another. Why is it that the human mind should take these opposites not as dead, rigid, but as living, conditional, mobile, transforming themselves into one another? Because that is just how things are in objective reality. The fact is that the unity or identity of opposites in objective things is not dead or rigid, but is living, conditional, mobile, temporary, and relative. In given conditions, every contradictory aspect transforms itself into its opposite. Reflected in man's thinking, this becomes the Marxist world outlook of materialist dialectics. It is only the reactionary ruling classes of the past and present, and the metaphysicians in their service, who regard opposites not as living, conditional, mobile, and transforming themselves into one another, but as dead and rigid, and they propagate this fallacy everywhere to delude the masses of the people, thus seeking to perpetuate their rule. The task of communists is to further expose the fallacies of the reactionaries and metaphysicians, to propagate the dialectics inherent in things, and so accelerate the transformation of things, and achieve the goal of revolution. In speaking of the identity of opposites in given conditions, what we are referring to is real and concrete opposites and the real and concrete transformations of opposites into one another. There are innumerable transformations in mythology. For instance, Kua Fu's race with the sun in Shanghai Xing, footnote 17. Yi's shooting down of nine suns in Huai Nan Tzu, footnote 18. The Monkey King's 72 metamorphoses in Hu... In Shi Hu Chi, footnote 19, the numerous episodes of ghosts and foxes metamorphosed into human beings in the strange tales of Liao Chai, footnote 20, etc. But these legendary transformations of opposites are not concrete changes reflecting concrete contradictions. They are naive, imaginary, subjectively conceived transformations conjured up in men's minds by innumerable real and complex transformations of opposites into one another. Marx said, All mythology masters and dominates and shapes the forces of nature in and through the imagination. Hence it disappears as soon as man gains mastery over the forces of nature. Footnote 21 The myriads of changes in mythology, and also in fairy tales, delight people because they imaginatively picture man's conquest of the forces of nature, and the best myths possess eternal charm, as Marx put it. But myths are not built out of the concrete contradictions existing in given conditions, and therefore are not a scientific reflection of reality. That is to say, in myths or fairy tales, the aspects constituting a contradiction have only an imaginary identity not a concrete identity. The scientific reflection of the identity in real transformations is Marxist dialectics. Why can an egg, but not a stone, be transformed into a chicken? Why is there identity between war and peace, and none between war and a stone? Why can human beings give birth only to human beings and not to anything else? The sole reason is that the identity of opposites exists only in necessary given conditions. 
Without these necessary given conditions, there can be no identity whatsoever. Why is it that in Russia in 1917, the bourgeois democratic February Revolution was directly linked with the proletarian socialist October Revolution, while in France the bourgeois revolution was not directly linked with a socialist revolution, and the Paris Commune of 1871 ended in failure? Why is it, on the other hand, that the nomadic system of Mongolia and Central Asia has been directly linked with socialism? Why is it that the Chinese revolution can avoid a capitalist future and be directly linked with socialism without taking the old historical road of the Western countries, without passing through a period of bourgeois dictatorship? The sole reason is the concrete conditions of the time. When certain necessary conditions are present, certain contradictions arise in the process of development of things, and, moreover, the opposites contained in them are interdependent and become transformed into one another. Otherwise, none of this would be possible. Such is the problem of identity. What then is struggle? And what is the relation between identity and struggle? Lenin said, quote, The unity, coincidence, identity, equal action, of opposites is conditional, temporary, transitory, relative. The struggle of mutually exclusive opposites is absolute, just as development and motion are absolute. End quote. Footnote 22. What does this passage mean? All processes have a beginning and an end. All processes transform themselves into their opposites. The constancy of all processes is relative, but the mutability manifested in the transformation of one process into another is absolute. There are two states of motion in all things, that of relative rest and that of conspicuous change. Both are caused by the struggle between the two contradictory elements contained in a thing. When the thing is in the first state of motion, it is undergoing only quantitative and not qualitative change, and consequently presents the outward appearance of being at rest. When the thing is in the second state of motion, the quantitative change of the first state has already reached a culminating point and gives rise to the dissolution of the thing as an entity, and thereupon a qualitative change ensues, hence the appearance of conspicuous change. Such unity, solidarity, combination, harmony, balance, stalemate, deadlock, rest, constancy, equilibrium, solidity, attraction, etc., as we see them in daily life, are all the appearances of things in the state of quantitative change. On the other hand, the dissolution of unity, that is, the destruction of this solidarity, combination, harmony, balance, stalemate, deadlock, rest, constancy, equilibrium, solidity, and attraction, and the change of each into its opposite, are all the appearances of things in the state of qualitative change. The transformation of one process into another, Things are constantly transforming themselves from the first into the second state of motion. The struggle of opposites goes on in both states, but the contradiction is resolved through the second state. This is why we say that the unity of opposites is conditional, temporary, and relative, while the struggle of mutually exclusive opposites is absolute. When we said above that two opposite things can coexist in a single entity and can transform themselves into each other because there is identity between them, we were speaking of conditionality. 
That is to say, in given conditions, two contradictory things can be united and can transform themselves into each other. But in the absence of these conditions, they cannot constitute a contradiction, cannot coexist in the same entity, and cannot transform themselves into one another. It is because the identity of opposites obtains only in given conditions that we have said identity is conditional and relative. We may add that the struggle between opposites permeates a process from beginning to end and makes one process transform itself into another. That it is ubiquitous, and that struggle is therefore unconditional and absolute. The combination of conditional relative identity and unconditional absolute struggle constitutes the movement of opposites in all things. We Chinese often say, things that oppose each other also complement each other. Footnote 23. That is, things opposed to each other have identity, are identical to one another. This saying is dialectical and contrary to metaphysics. Oppose each other refers to the mutual exclusion or the struggle of two contradictory aspects. Complement each other means that in given conditions, the two contradictory aspects unite and achieve identity. Yet struggle is inherent in identity, and without struggle, there can be no identity. In identity, there is struggle. In particularity, there is universality. And in individuality, there is generality. To quote Lenin, there is an absolute in the relative. Footnote 24. And that's going to do it for this week. Next week we will come to the conclusion of this chapter. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.